The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. I was raised in a uh, Catholic, Roman Catholic family in Eastern Massachusetts. I was a faithful church attender. As I was growing up, I was an altar boy. I enjoyed my time in church. I learned uh, accurately about Jesus, uh, who he was, the son of God, uh, son of Mary. I learned truly about the Trinity. Uh, But one thing I did not learn in the Catholic church is how a sinner like me can be made right with God. And so I was lost. I went to church every, every Sunday, but I uh, lived a lost life throughout the week. And when I went off to college, I stopped going to church. I was too busy on Saturday nights um, and Sunday mornings to be busy uh, going to church. It wasn't in my heart anyway. I joined a fraternity at MIT Sigma Chi, and one of our responsibilities uh, in the summer was fraternity evangelism. Now, that's not the gospel. We had to recruit incoming freshmen to come to parties. And the reason was it was a living arrangement uh, there on Beacon Street in Boston and we had just graduated a crop of people and if we didn't replace them, our rent was going to go up. And so we had to get a new crop of incoming freshmen, just as I had been recruited the year before. And so I had to make five recruitment phone calls that summer to incoming freshmen in eastern Massachusetts to come to summer parties that our fraternity was putting on. I hated making those phone calls. Because the freshmen are so cynical, they were getting all these calls and all that, and I couldn't stand doing it. So I had to make five phone calls, and I made five phone calls. And I crumpled up the list and threw it in the trash. I was done. And then I felt guilty. I was like, what kind of attitude is that? I'm going to make six phone calls. (laughs) I'm going to go above and beyond the call of duty. The sixth guy led me to Christ. Steve Chamberlain. Took him up out of the trash can, and I guess to some degree, God took me up out of hell and into heaven. Uh, Smoothed it out. He lived in Topsfield, uh, amazingly, a town I would later become a pastor in. And uh, he was being mentored by a guy named Mark Dever. Um, I met him the same week I came to Christ. He's pastor of Capitol Hill Baptist Church and leader of the Nine Marks Ministry. Um, He came to see me the week I was converted. I didn't remember that, but Mark reminded me of that. Um, Steve led me to Christ after a year of evangelistic effort. I treated Steve very badly. I was rude to him. At first, when he started talking to me about Christ and the gospel, I was interested. And then little by little, I became offended. I didn't like how I felt when Steve was around. And so I didn't want to even eat with him. I didn't want to spend any time with him. Uh, But eventually, God broke through. And the Lord has reminded me of Steve Chamberlain and of his faithfulness. And the year it took me to be converted, I didn't come to faith in Christ the first time I heard the gospel in an evangelistic sense. But I eventually did come, and the Lord, by his sovereign grace, brought me. I don't know if this is accurate. I just have a sense that in the 36 or so years since that time, I think only one or two other people have evangelized me. I think only one or two people, and I'm not counting the Jehovah's Witnesses that came and knocking on our door. I'm not counting them. But I'm saying people that 
didn't know me, didn't know anything about me, and reached out with me. They reached out to me with the gospel. And I was always thankful for that, but I realized evangelism is hard for Christians to do. And it's been a struggle that I've had my entire Christian life. I'm not naturally outgoing. Uh, I don't naturally enjoy meeting strangers. It's a, a challenge. And I think Satan's put up some obstacles in our culture uh, that hinder us from meeting strangers, talking comfortably to people that we don't know. But as we come this morning to the second to last sermon I'm going to preach on Revelation next week, I will do an overview of the entire book. But we come to verse 17, which you heard Jackson just read for us. We're going to focus on this one verse and we're going to talk about evangelism and the responsibility that we have to share the gospel with people around us right here in the area. Look again at the verse. Verse 17, the spirit and the bride say, come. And let him who hears say, come. And whoever is thirsty, let him come. And whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. So we're going to immerse ourselves this morning in the mysterious calling of the gospel, the responsibility we have to be involved in the gospel ministry. We're going to learn more about evangelism, of calling thirsty sinners to faith in Christ. Every single day we are surrounded in this triangle region by unchurched people, by unsaved people. This area, I don't know if you've noticed, is just exploding with people who are pouring in here from all over the country, indeed from many places all over the world. And people are finding the Raleigh-Durham-Chapel Hill area a desirable place to live. There are jobs here in the high-tech industry, in the pharmaceutical research area. Uh, there are excellent hospitals, there are excellent universities. There's a, a, a pleasant uh, style of life, comfortable uh, level of life that people find attractive. The climate is much better down here than in Boston, Massachusetts. I can assure you of that. I don't miss the winters up there at all. It's one of the fastest growing metropolitan regions in the country. And most of those that come are unchurched, they're unsaved. We have a responsibility to share the gospel. We are strategically located here in downtown Durham to do precisely that. And these folks that are, are pouring in here, that are lost, they're outside of Christ, they are desperately seeking something. They're, they're thirsty for something. They're thirsty for meaning and purpose in life. And they're drinking from the cup of the great horror of Babylon, we could say from Revelation 17, the, all of the material pleasures and advantages of life, Revelation 18. We know that that's what's going on, but they don't know that. And the drinking that they're doing from that cup, it only makes them more thirsty. It's kind of an addictive cycle, like quenching your thirst with salt water. And they're just never satisfied. They're thirsty for something. They're trying to find joy and pleasure and satisfaction and meaning in life. And we know they'll never find it from this world system. They're going to find it. If they're ever going to find it, they're going to find it in Christ. They're going to find it in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's our privilege it's our responsibility to call on them to come and drink from Christ. As I look at this text, and I, rem I reminded you of this text last week, Isaiah 55, 1 and 2. I always think, I, jo I join these two together. Isaiah 55, 1 and 2 says, Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen. Listen to me and eat what is good and your soul will delight in the richest of fare. So we are poised, strategically poised to make that invitation, to call on thirsty people 
to come and drink and find deep, rich, full satisfaction without money, without cost. To reach hundreds and hundreds, even thousands with the gospel. And to see dozens and dozens more baptized here in this church than we've ever seen before. We're poised for that. And that's my desire. It's the desire of all of the elders. We want to see the Lord open doors all around us. And we need to walk through those doors. As Jesus said earlier in the book of Revelation, I've placed before you, the church at Philadelphia, I've placed before you a door which no one can shut. He's the one that when he opens, no one can shut. And when he shuts, no one can open. And he has that kind of sovereign power. So this sermon's about evangelism. And specifically about our cooperation with the Holy Spirit of God in evangelism. We're called on to be partners in a mysterious way with the Holy Spirit in this work of gospel outreach. As I mentioned last week, this is God's final invitation in Scripture to sinners to find salvation in Christ. We come to the end of the Bible, the final book of the Bible, final chapter, the final section of the final chapter. And with it we have God's final invitation to sinners to come and find salvation in Christ. And as I read this invitation, I think about the parable that Jesus told in Matthew 22 of a king who wanted to put on a wedding banquet for his son. The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. And he sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Then he sent some more servants and said, tell those who have been invited that I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fattened cattle have been butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention and went off. One to his field, another to his business. God has been standing and beckoning to lost people throughout the generations to come to the wedding banquet. But people don't come. They turn away in disinterest. A number of years ago at Christmas time, I, I picked up on a, a story that Hans Christian Andersen wrote called The Little Match Girl. I don't know if you remember that story. And it's a story of a very poor girl who's got a very harsh, domineering father who sends her out in freezing cold weather uh, on Christmas Eve to sell matches. But she can't get anyone. No one's out. It's so cold. And she can't get anyone to buy her matches. And she's standing outside of some rich homes and she looks in and she can see a banquet. And the window is steaming with the with the, the, the aromas of the, the roast goose and all of the, the, the lavish food on this banquet table. But she's on the outside looking in. And no one comes out to see her. No one invites her in. And so what she does is she successfully takes one of these, uh, these matches and lights it. And she looks at the glow and she imagines herself sitting at the banquet table. Until that match burns out. And then one by one she lights all of those matches until... They are all gone, and then she's found the next morning frozen to death. However, the parable of the wedding banquet has a, a very different bent. Here the happy king is spreading a feast and yearning for people to come in and eat freely, without money, without cost, freely, and find their souls richly satisfied with the richest of fare. But he can't get anyone who will pay attention to it at all. In the parallel telling in Luke 14, verse 18 through 20, it says, But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I've just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. And still another said, I just got married so I can't come. They're just making excuses. Unlike the little match girl 
who was desperate that someone would come invite her so that she can come in and get warm and be fed. But no one will invite her or open the door or welcome her. In this case, the tragic figure is more the, the one of the king who wants some people to come and celebrate with his son who's getting married, and he can't find anyone who will come in. And so in that parable, the king sends more and more messengers to compel people. Then his master told his servant, go out to the roads and the country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. So God stands day after day beckoning to sinners, inviting them to a banquet. It says in Romans 10, 21, all day long I've held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. So that's the picture that I have here as we talk about evangelism. Now, some of these people that are pouring into this area drive by churches every day. And I think they believe that this thing's just going to keep on going on and on. They think that they have limitless time. Maybe they have some attractions to church. Maybe they've had some good experiences in the past. Maybe they're curious. But they just drive by these churches as they go to work or as they shop or as they do different things. Maybe on Sundays as they are on their way to the golf course or whatever, they just drive by um, churches. And they see the steadiness of God's gracious invitation day after day, week after week, year after year. And the churches seem just so solid and they're just going to be there forever. And the churches are always going to be there giving that consistent message of salvation in Jesus. But I'm telling you, there's going to come a time it will all come to an end. No book teaches that so plainly as the book of Revelation. It's going to come to an end. I mean, it comes to an end for every individual. If we're not in the final generation, each one of us are going to die. It's appointed to us to die and after that to face judgment. So for a lost person, as they go through their life, if they're surrounded like they are here in America with, with many opportunities to hear the gospel, there's going to come a last hearing of the gospel, a last chance they had to hear of the grace of God in Christ Jesus. Centuries ago, uh, the Baptist preacher John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, uh, preached a sermon based on two texts in the New Testament, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, and then the parable of the rich fool. You remember the rich fuel, the one whose land produced an abundant harvest and he didn't know where to put it all? And so he said, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to tear down my barns and I'm going to build bigger barns. And in the parable, the, the rich fool says, you have plenty of good things for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your soul will be required of you. He also talked about the rich man and Lazarus and how, the Lazarus, how Lazarus was languishing in hell. And so the name of the sermon was A Few Sighs from Hell. Bunyan said this, this man, instead of thinking of his death, he thought about how he might make his barns bigger. But in the midst of his business in the world, he lost his soul before he was aware, supposing that death had, has been, had been many years off. But God said unto him, you fool, you trouble yourself about things of this life, and you put off thoughts of departing this world, when this very night your soul shall be taken from you. And hence it is again that you have some in your towns and some in your cities that are so suddenly taken away, some from visiting the alehouses, others from frequenting the whorehouses, 
others from playing and gaming, others from the cares and covetous desires after this world, unlooked for as by themselves or their companions. Then suddenly it's all over, it all comes to an end. And we can well imagine the sighs that come and the groans that come and the laments that come from hell from many damn people saying, I always thought I would have more time. I always figured I'd have one more chance to hear the gospel. So that's true of every individual. It's going to come to an end. It's also true of the human race. The world is moving ahead to the end. There was an alpha day, there will be an omega day, a final day. And this is God's last invitation in the text of Scripture. The Spirit and the bride say, come, and let him who hears say, come, and whoever is thirsty, let him come, and whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. And so this is a call to redeem the time. If any of you are here now, today, in an unconverted state, this is an opportunity for you to cross over from death to life. It's an opportunity for you. As it says in 2 Corinthians 6, in the time of my favor, God is speaking to you. In the time of my favor, I heard you. In the day of my salvation, I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. So, it's an invitation. Look at verse 17. An invitation to, to come. And to do what? Well, look what it says. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let him who hears say, come. And whoever is thirsty, let him come. And whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. So it's an invitation to come and drink the free gift of the water of life. At the beginning of Revelation 22, we see what that is. Revelation 22, 1 and 2. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life flowing clear as crystal from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. And on each side of the river stood the tree of life bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. So it's an invitation to come and drink that water the water of eternal life, to come and drink and live, to live forever. So, are you thirsty? Has sin left you parched? Has sin left you empty? Come to the waters. Come and drink the waters of the river of life flowing from Christ. This is specifically an invitation to come to Jesus Christ as your Savior. Jesus said in John 6, 35, I am the bread of life, Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. Well, that's typical Jewish parallelism, Jewish poetry. They did this a lot. They said the same thing twice in slightly different ways. Jesus did the same. So to, to come to me, Jesus said, is to believe in me. That's the same thing. And, and if you do, you'll never go hungry. You'll, if you believe in him, you'll never be thirsty. So to come to the waters, to come to Jesus, is to believe in him, to trust in him for the forgiveness of your sins. Now, this verse says the spirit and the bride are both saying, come. Come to Jesus. It's a marvelous verse on the cooperation between the spirit and the bride. Now, the bride, we have learned in Revelation 21, the bride is the church of Jesus Christ. That's what the bride is. The bride is the people of God in this world, the church. And so the spirit and the bride, the church, are together inviting lost sinners to come and drink from Christ and find life. Both the spirit 
and the church, therefore, are instrumental in bringing lost sinners to faith in Christ. We both have a role to play. So the Spirit calls sinners to come, and the bride calls sinners to come. And even those who are thirsty and who are coming and drinking are inviting other thirsty people to come and drink. So now let's unpack that a little bit more. The Spirit says come, generally, universally, to the human race. And he does that by means of the Scripture, by means of the Bible that he has inspired. So, the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit inspired the Scriptures, the written Word of God, which has the power to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus, 2 Timothy 3, 15. So the Scripture has the power to do that. In the Scripture, we have the gospel of Jesus Christ. Romans 1, 16, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. The righteousness that is from faith for faith Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. That's a summary of the whole book of Romans. The Holy Spirit was in the Apostle Paul when he wrote those words. And through the book of Romans, the Holy Spirit is saying to the human race, come, come to Christ and find forgiveness. Later in that same book, we have the the glowing heart of the gospel, the center of the gospel in Romans chapter 3. Verse 21 through 24, it says, A righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. So the law and the prophets together talk about this salvation, the Old Testament. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, that means forgiven of their sins, made right in the sight of God. They are justified freely. By his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Jesus shed his blood on the cross in our place that we might have forgiveness of sins. And as Paul wrote there, the law and the prophets testified of this gospel. Even though they lived centuries before Jesus. So the Holy Spirit was in the prophets. And he was showing them things about the future. Things they would have no way of knowing. No other way. And so it says in 1 Peter 1, concerning this salvation... The prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. Do you hear that? The Spirit told Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel, things they had no other way of knowing, that centuries later a Savior would come and he would suffer, he would die, and he would be raised on the third day, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins would be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit told the prophets these things. Now they scratched their head and said, I don't understand. Daniel said that for all the prophets. I don't get it. I don't, I don't understand this. But it was revealed to them, Peter said, that they were not serving themselves but you. When they spoke of the grace that has now come to you, by the Holy Spirit, and by those who have preached the gospel, by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, even angels long to look into these things. And so the Holy Spirit 
was in the prophets and in the apostles, in the writing of the word. And, and so we have the scriptures. And through the scriptures, the spirit is saying, come, generally, to the human race. And so the Holy Spirit wrote the Old Testament through the prophets. He also wrote the New Testament through the apostles. The Holy Spirit was in them. After the day of Pentecost, they came in. The Holy Spirit uh, came into them. And then they wrote the New Testament. They were the, they were the eyewitnesses. And on the basis of the, of the witness of the apostles, we have the New Testament. The Holy Spirit was in that too. And Jesus said it was going to happen. In John 14, 26, it says, The Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you, apostles, all things. And he will remind you of everything I have said to you. So the Holy Spirit came and reminded Peter and John and James and Andrew and all of those apostles who were eyewitnesses, reminded them of all the things that he said and did. And on the basis of that, we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then the entire New Testament. So the Father and the Son together sent the Spirit into the world to complete the redemptive work of God. This is an amazing teaching. Without the powerful working of the Spirit, not a single sinner would ever have been saved. Jesus' atoning work on the cross would have saved no one were it not for the work of the Holy Spirit. I'm not speaking blasphemy. I'm not speaking heresy. It's true. The blood of Christ was shed, but it had to be applied. Just like the Jews of old had to paint the blood on the doorpost, remember? And when the angel of death saw the blood having been applied, he passed over. It's the Holy Spirit's glory to apply the blood of Christ Christ to sinners like you and me. And so he moves and works. And so I owe my salvation as much to the work of, of the Holy Spirit as I do to the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. It's a cooperative effort and to the Father for the plan. And by the Spirit, the gospel goes out into all the world. By the Spirit, Jesus becomes famous in every generation. I was thinking about that statement made by John Lennon about the Beatles, remember? Maybe you don't. You're making my point. I'll make a point in just a moment. John Lennon was an English musician who played for a rock group known as the Beatles. When I was growing up, almost everybody had heard of them. Some of you younger people have never heard of them, making my point. As every generation passes, they will become less and less famous. John Lennon said, we're more famous than Jesus. Well, maybe at that moment they were close. I doubt it, though. I doubt it. But it's not true anymore. Because a new generation of babies was born that never heard of John Lennon. And there is no zealous, powerful, omnipotent God ensuring in every generation that John Lennon and the Beatles will be famous. As a matter of fact, all flesh is grass and all their glory is like the flower of the field. And they become less and less famous with every passing year. But Jesus somehow is famous in every generation. How is that? It's the work of the Holy Spirit. And so the Spirit is making Jesus famous all over the world by moving the bride also to say, come. So by the Spirit, the church is moved to preach the gospel. Jesus said to the apostles and through them to the whole church, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The Spirit compels witness. And that's the very thing I'm counting on now for you, O church. All of us feel inadequate as evangelists. We all do. 
we need to remind ourselves it's only when the power of the Spirit comes on us that we can overcome our weaknesses and our selfishness and actually share the gospel with people. Rely on the Holy Spirit. Point of application. It's like I know about evangelism. I know what you want me to do, Pastor. It's just hard. I understand. It's hard for me too. Just ask God to give you power through the Holy Spirit to be his witness today. Say, oh God, would you please give me an opportunity to share the gospel today with somebody? And then when that moment comes, would you please make me alert to it? And then would you help me get over my sinful weakness and say something for Jesus? It's by the power of the Spirit. The Spirit compels witness. He's been doing this in every generation. One of my great missionary heroes is Hudson Taylor. He was a missionary to, the, uh, to China. And he had finished his first tour of duty there. He'd been on uh, the coast, like all the missionaries were on the coast. And he went back to um, England and Scotland for some uh, furlough, recuperation, and recruitment of new missionaries. And he had this vision. Uh, he actually saw a map of China and the inner provinces, the inland regions of China. And he knew that there were teeming hundreds of millions of people who had never heard of Jesus in those inner regions. And all of the Western missionaries were on the coastline. They were only on the coast. And he called it the accusing map. It accused him. And he went to a service there in England. And uh, he wrote this about this experience he had. On Sunday, June 25th, 1865, unable to bear the sight of a congregation of a thousand or more Christian people rejoicing in their own security while millions were perishing for lack of knowledge, I wandered out onto the sands alone in great spiritual agony. And there the Lord conquered my unbelief, and I surrendered myself to God for this service of recruiting missionaries for the inland regions of China. I told him that all the responsibility as to the issues and consequences must rest with him, and that as his servant, it was mine to obey and follow him, his to direct and to care for and guide those missionaries that he might raise up. Need I say at that moment, what peace flowed into my burdened heart? Where did the burden come from? Where did the unutterable agony come from as he's wandering on the sands? Does that not come from the Holy Spirit of God? The Spirit puts a burden on our hearts. He puts a compulsion on our hearts. Ask God to give you a burden. Ask him to give you a burning compulsion to reach some group of people or some category or somebody that you are equipped to reach. Ask him to give you a burden. It's like the Apostle Paul. He said in Acts 20, And now, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. If only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of his grace. Let me go back to the beginning of that quote. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem. That's what I'm talking about, the compulsion of the Spirit, a burden from the Spirit of God, where you then, little by little, consider your life worth nothing to you if only you can do the work he's given you to do. Don't you yearn for that to happen in our church? That more and more and more church members would have a compulsion by the Spirit towards some aspect of outreach. It doesn't have to be the same for everybody. We've got different callings. So the Spirit says come. The bride says come as well. The bride is the church. And so there's a collaborative, a joint effort between the Spirit and the church. John 15, 26 and 27 teaches the same thing. Jesus said, when the counselor comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, that's the Holy Spirit, who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. And you also must testify 
because you have been with me from the beginning. Do you hear that? This is a partnership. The counselor, the Holy Spirit is going to testify about me, and you also must testify. Same teaching. The Spirit and the bride together say, come. And we are to preach the gospel to anyone and everyone. We're to preach it indiscriminately because we cannot tell who are the elect chosen before the foundation of the world. We know that that's true. It's biblical. We just don't know who they are. And so our task is to be willing to suffer for unconverted elect people to see them cross over from darkness to light, from, from, from death to life. Adnarm Judson was called to be a missionary to Burma. Told you this story before, but this is so convicting it stuck with me. He went to one locality, and he and his partner gave out 500 missionary tracts. And as a result, they saw one Burmese person baptized. 500 to 1. You know what I yearn for? I yearn for the 500 tracks. You're like, well, don't you want the one? I want the one. But I just want us to be the kind of church that can just give out 499 and then on the 500 the person gets converted. Don't you want to be? I would love to be that persistent in evangelism where I'm just faithful. I'm just leaving to God the results and I'm, going to be, I'm willing to have 499 failures to see somebody come to Christ. Our job is to share Christ with as many people as we can to keep sharing the gospel no matter how many or few respond. George Whitfield is one of the most powerful open-air preachers in all of church history. Probably the most effective open-air preacher ever. Preached to literally tens and tens of thousands of people. Saw hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands and thousands, converted. But he also said something that stuck with me. As he was going from place to place to place in the, in the colonies, this before the American Revolution, uh, and uh, also in England, Scotland, as he was going from place to place, he would travel by horse-drawn carriage, other things. He said this, God forbid, God forbid that I should travel with anyone one quarter of an hour and not share the gospel with them. So I, I got to tell you, uh, Joel Harford and I, we went to um, a conference in Louisville, and uh, we came back, and we were on two flights. Flight first, back to that great mecca of air transportation, Atlanta. I've been to Atlanta more times than I can count. I am knowing the Atlanta airport very well. So we went from Louisville to Atlanta, from Atlanta to RDU. Two legs. In both cases, I had seat A, and he had seat C. <laughs> the first guy, bless his heart... <laughs> was a 19-year-old uh, uh, baseball player from a college uh, in the Louisville area named Isaiah. African-American guy from a mild kind of Baptistic background, hadn't been to church in years. The second guy lived in Wake Forest, a uh, nominal Roman Catholic, hadn't been to church in years either. His name was Joe. Now, Joel and I, I don't think we pounded on him. I, I think we gave him a break. Like one of them asked, you know, if he could get by to use the restroom. And, and I wonder if that was to get away. I don't know. I hope not. But, you know, I think Joel and I agreed that we had done what we needed to do. But we had the greatest time. And Isaiah asked a lot of good questions. He was taking a, a religion, a world religions class. And one of the things he was reading, uh, whether the gospel of Thomas should be included in the Bible. I mean, so God put us there to have that conversation. Joe, at the end, thanked us for the things we talked about. He asked questions. He kept the conversation going until we landed. And so it's just opportunities that God gives you along the way. Now the Spirit alone has the power to say come effectually. There is an effectual calling, a mysterious effective calling of the Holy Spirit that no sinner has ever resisted or ever will. It's called effectual calling or some have called it irresistible grace. 
And when the Spirit moves, Ezekiel 36 says, I will remove the heart of stone, and I will put within you a heart of flesh, and I'll put my Spirit in you and move you to obey my commands and my decrees, including the command to repent and believe in Jesus. The Holy Spirit alone can do that. We can't do that. The Spirit can do that. Or again, in John 3, Jesus said to Nicodemus very famously, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. How can a man be born when he is old? Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the, the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the spirit. Born of the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So that's when the Spirit says, come, and he gives you supernatural power. Like Jesus, when he raised Lazarus from the dead, and you come alive, and you see the glory of God in the face of Christ, and you're born again. The Spirit, he can do that. Effectual calling. And when that happens, get, guess what happens? Look what the text says. Whoever is thirsty, let him come. And whoever wishes, whosoever wills, let him come. And you're like, well, there it is. There's free will right in the Bible. Whosoever wills, let him come. Can I tell you something? Without the Holy Spirit calling on your dead heart, you will never be willing to come. But when he gives you life, when he moves in you, then you will see at last just how delicious that water of life flowing from Jesus is, and you want it. And so he comes. All that the Father gives me, Jesus said, will come to me. Isn't that beautiful? John 6 and verse 37. And so the Holy Spirit draws. But our job is to share the gospel. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It says that in Romans 10. But how can they call on one of whom they have not believed? And how can they believe in someone of whom they've never heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. So we have a partnership responsibility. So let Christ make you a fisher of people. As he said to his disciples, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Our, our job is to learn the skill of fishing for people. Now, I'm never going to want to learn to fish. I know some of you love fishing. Okay, I'm going to talk about real fishing, like trout fishing, bass fishing, deep sea fishing. I have decided I don't like either the process or the product. And so I'm not going to do that. Others of you, I know you love it. It's very relaxing and peaceful. I've heard you say, if the fish don't disturb us, we'll be fine. We'll have a great time. This is different. We have a responsibility to learn the skill of fishing for people, to learn how to draw them skillfully, to answer their questions, to deal with arguments that Satan's put in their minds. That's our responsibility. He has committed to us the ministry of reconciliation. We are positioned like Esther for such a time as this. We are positioned to share the gospel. Now, our task is to understand the gospel message and to proclaim it boldly. Will Metzger, in his book, To Tell the Truth, begins with this illustration. Picture this. A runner in ancient Greece arrives exhausted before the empire, or emperor. Gasping, he blurts out, My Lord, I was given an urgent message, but I'm afraid I've forgotten what it is. That's very bad. 
our job, first and foremost, we need to understand what the gospel is. Now, I've given you a bulletin insert there. It's uh, blue. See there? Right there. See? Gospel outline. I'm hoping this will sound very familiar to you folks. Long time ago, the Campus Crusade for Christ uses the four spiritual laws. Other tracts have organized the gospel into four main headings. I didn't come up with the God-Man-Christ response outline. That's not me. Many others have. But I think that's a basic four-part outline of the gospel. You see it? Gospel outline. God, man, human race, humanity, Christ, and response. So first, God. We want to share with people that God is the creator of everything. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He created all things. Because he created all things, he is king, ruler over everything. This is his universe. We are in it. He is the king. And as a king, he is a lawgiver. And he has given laws to the human race by which we are to live our lives. The Ten Commandments and the Two Great Commandments. And as a king, he is also judge. And he's going to evaluate us on judgment day for how we have lived our lives. That's God. Secondly, man, we are created in the image of God by God the creator. We were created to have a relationship with and to serve God the king. But we have broken that relationship through our sins. We have violated God's laws. We are rebellious against God the king. And therefore, we're under condemnation by God the judge. Physical death is promised. Eternal death in hell is threatened. Thirdly, Christ. Christ is the fourth office that we give you. God the Savior. Salvation is from the Lord. That's what Jesus means. Salvation is from Yahweh. So God sent his son into the world. Fully human, born of a virgin, fully God. He had no human father. Supernatural birth. He lived a sinless life. He never committed any sins. And he did miracles. He walked on water. He fed the 5,000. He stilled the storm with his words. He raised dead people. He healed sick people. There was nothing he could not do. But he especially came to die a substitutionary death on the cross. His blood shed on the cross pays the death penalty for our sin for the wages of sin is death and Jesus paid that penalty in our place but God didn't leave him in the grave on the third day God raised him from from the grave and he's alive and will live forevermore and God ascended him and sat him at his right hand and he rules over heaven and earth and someday he's going to return to judge living and dead people so therefore we ourselves having heard that we must repent of our sins and believe the good news that forgiveness of sins is available in Jesus Christ. And what you must not do, you must not try to work for it or earn your salvation, but instead trust in the grace of God. For by grace are you saved through faith, and this not of yourselves is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. And don't wait for it because you don't even know if you'll be alive tomorrow, but repent and believe the good news today. Okay, so that's a very quick gospel presentation. I don't believe that you need to do that every time you evangelize, but it should be your goal to say those things in some form to the lost people around you. That's, in, that's a pattern or a form of the gospel message. Now, how are we going to do it? If you flip the blue sheet and look on the back, 
I want to give you a menu of options, a different, different menu of way of looking at your life. I had a list of like eight different fields, but it was a little bit disorganized. So I wanted to separate it into two questions. And as you think about lost people in your life, who are they to you? And so think almost like concentric circles. Who are the lost people in your life? What are their names? What are they, who are they to you? And then secondly, what would you like to do with them? What are some activities or something that causes your lives to bump together? Does that make sense? So those are the two, like who are they to me and how can I reach them? So first, family. You parents with growing kids, you just need to know this. The most effective evangelism there is in the world is parent-child evangelism. Be faithful to pour out the gospel into your children's lives. Lead them to an early faith in Christ. Pour out the gospel on them. So parent-child, but you've also got back up. Like, your, your parents, if they're unsaved, you can lead them to Christ. God's done that so many times. Use saved kids or saved children to, raise, uh, to lead their parents to Christ. You can think about your own siblings. Maybe you have unsaved uh, brothers, sisters, relatives, cousins, nieces, nephews, family members. Secondly, friends. These are just people that you're friendly with in your life. I don't know how they got to be your friends, but you're, you're friends. They're unsaved friends. And this leads us into the topic of friendship evangelism. There's a lot of things I could say about that, but just, just building relationships with non-Christians who are friends. Thirdly, neighbors. They live near you. Now, when I was growing up, we knew our neighbors. They were out, out and about. I went on a bike ride the other day. It was a little hot, about 90 degrees. It was a two-hour bike ride. I didn't see a single pedestrian the whole time I was out. Nobody out in their yard, nobody walking, nobody down the streets, it was, there's no one out. It was weird. I was like, where is everybody? Well, they're all inside. Watching electronic entertainment or doing, you know, AC. I know it's hot here. I understand. But still, but there's neighbors. And so we have to do things to meet the people that live near us. Then there's daily life acquaintances. People you just get to know in your daily life. People at a convenience store. People at a supermarket. People that are just around. People that are sitting next to you on an airplane. I love doing that. Um, you know, just daily life flow, all right? Then there's coworkers. Workplace evangelism is one of the most effective evangelistic strategies there is. There you are interacting every day with non-Christians. They're coworkers, your boss, uh, a subordinate. You can just hunt opportunities to share Christian things. Invite people to church. Invite people to your home. Use hospitality. We'll get to that in just a moment. But they're coworkers. Workplace evangelism. And then just total strangers. You could just go out to a park nearby and sit down and just somebody comes up, maybe you're both, you know, uh, walking dogs or you're there with your kids and you each have strollers and you just get in conversation. You just strike up gospel conversations. So that's just concentric circles of who they are to you. Then how can I reach them? Well, first is just a long-term loving relationship. Just if I can urge you, just be a human being. Get to know them. Ask questions. As I'm sitting on the plane with people, I always just ask questions. So where are you headed? They always think that's a stupid question. I'm heading to Atlanta. So I, I mean, ultimately, where are you headed? So I try not to ask stupid questions, but I just want to have a conversation with somebody. Just, a, a, you know, workplace. Just, I want to have, I want to be interested in their lives. I want to ask questions. I want to find out about them. I want it to flow naturally from love. Secondly, hospitality. Open your home. Home base. Invite people over. Invite neighbors over. Invite coworkers over. Thirdly, felt needs. That would be uh, our international connections ministry. 
ESL is a big felt need. People come uh, from China, they come from other places, they're refugees and they need to learn or they want to learn English better. We're meeting a felt need. The health fair is a health, health, uh, felt need ministry. Mercy ministries are felt need ministries. You could do Habitat for Humanity. You could do all kinds of issues that meet non-Christians' felt needs. And we can set up ministries that would do that. The Caring Center is a felt need type ministry. Fourthly, event. So that would be like VBS. VBS is coming very soon. We'll need volunteers. I mean, we, we get to interact with dozens and dozens of non-Christian homes because they send their kids to VBS. And so that's a big ministry, and I'm, I'm just urging you to consider serving if you're able. Uh, health fair, we just had that. That's a, uh, uh, also a felt need ministry, but it's also an event. So the event is we're putting something on. We're having a, a Christmas party at our home, having a 4th of July cookout. Why don't you come? That kind of thing. And then shared interests. Like maybe you like to run or you like to ride bikes or you like pottery or your kids are in sports or in music and you do shared interests with non-Christians. So that's a basic beginning menu of strategies. Connect them. Find ways you can interact with people. I also want to urge this church to be involved in what we call a culture of evangelism. Let's develop as a church caring for each other and getting involved. Like if you had a 4th of July thing at your home, Involve other church members. Don't do it alone. Don't do it alone. You could do the same thing with workplace evangelism, where you're inviting people to come to groups and you know there's going to be other church members there. These are some of my friends. They're Christians too. All right, so I've got so many more things. Two more things and then I'll be done. I know what time it is. Um, These books here in the front, I've got Tell the Truth by Will Metzger on this side and Evangelism by by Max Stiles on this side. I've got ten of each now that I put this here. And uh, I'm offering them free of charge to the first 20 people. Just take one book. Don't take two books. So if you take the book, you don't have to pay for it. It's yours. Take it. But you're promising you'll read it. And you're promising that when you get done, you'll pass it off to another church member that they can read it to. So come and grab them afterwards. I'll be heartbroken if there are any left. So just come and get a book. All right? The final point I want to make, I don't have time to develop it, but... We need to give ourselves to prayer for this. We need to ask God to help us evangelistically. And to that end, I'm going to offer like three options on prayer. All of our home fellowships are going to, I know this is our last home fellowship of the year. But we're going to talk about evangelism. We're going to have chances to pray. What I would urge is that home fellowships across the summer, even though they're not meeting, find a time to get together and pray for evangelistic fruit in each other's lives and in our church. So do that. Secondly, every week... A small group of us meets at 8.30 a.m. Sunday morning to pray. All you would have to do, since you're coming to church anyway, is readjust your schedule. Just get here a little bit earlier and join us to pray. So come at 8.30 and pray. We're going to pray for evangelistic fruitfulness, and that might be the most convenient way you could do something extraordinary. But thirdly, this week I'm going to begin for four weeks to pray on Wednesday morning, as I've done in the past with others, at 6 a.m. to pray for our church to be evangelistically fruitful. If you'd like to come, sacrifice a little sleep, we'll meet right here in the sanctuary, we'll drag up chairs, and we'll sit and pray for God to bless our evangelistic outreach for the next four weeks we'll meet. So join me and do that. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the time we've had to study. Thank you for the things that we've learned. Father, I pray that you would give us zeal for the glory of God. Give us zeal for the gospel ministry. Help us to be energetically active as witnesses. Help us not to be afraid or fearful of it. Help us to be active in the things that you've called on us to do. We thank you, O Lord, for committing to us the ministry of reconciliation. As though God himself were making his appeal through us. Help us, O Lord, to be faithful. In Jesus' name.
Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.